I'm in a series, just beginning a series. The message I was going to bring, I'm going to defer till next Sunday. And I'm using this as an introduction to that series because it's about church. And uh, in the little brochure you got, or the little announcement last week, you saw two kinds of churches. One that were alive and doing well, and another one that was broken and fractured, and there was disappointment, discouragement, and all of those things that characterize churches that aren't doing well for whatever reason. Well, uh, I want to take some of the thoughts that I shared on Thursday and bring them to you. And uh, next week I plan to bring notes on, that I distributed to them. Uh, since writing them, I've uh, thought of a few things that should be added. But uh, I'm still getting an echo up here. I don't know, is that, uh, are there open mics or something up there? Is that what might be? So how's that? Okay, that's better. All right, I'm going to turn you to Acts chapter 19. Paul uh, had some amazing, amazing experiences while he was in, uh, in the book of Acts. So did Peter and John, the other disciples. The, the whole church was built uh, in sharp contrast to the cultures where the message of the gospel was brought. Uh, there were two great challenges that uh, the early church faced. One was the Jewish religion and how difficult it was for people to break away from their Jewish culture and embrace the idea that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of their religion. He is the Messiah. Many, many Jews did believe, but many didn't. And so there was a constant struggle. And that's why the disciples, the apostles, would go into the synagogues and they would teach about Jesus, reasoning with the Jews about the gospel and how that Christ was indeed the Messiah. And then the second great challenge was idolatry. That was rampant throughout the Gentile world, where false gods were worshipped. They weren't really gods that didn't exist, but the people believed they did. And then coupled with that was the demonic power, the power of Satan, that is infused into those false religions that causes miracles to actually take place by those who practice those religions. And so Paul uh, encountered a lot of things. One of them was in Ephesus. And it says, uh, and it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Moving down to verse 6, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. The church begins, must begin with the baptism and the anointing, the subsequent anointings of the Holy Spirit. Have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed or since you believed? 
And, you know, that's a question to ask ourselves every day, not just was there a time in my life when God filled me with his spirit, but it's a daily question almost. In fact, it is. Am I walking in the spirit today? Is the spirit of God filling my life? The church must ask that question. We can very easily slip into traditionalism, very easy slip into form where there really isn't much substance. We so need the Holy Spirit. Cultures, church culture is so fixated on form. And uh, so it's like everything is programmed, everything, everything is just... And what's happening is there's a huge decline in some of the traditional churches. And studies that I've shown that I've studied, uh, uh, research rather, that I'll include in my notes next week, just show a constant decline in some of the mainline churches. By mainline, we mean the United Presbyterian, Anglican, uh, Lutheran churches, churches that have been around for a long time. And whenever I meet with the ministers of the county for prayer here on uh, once a month we meet for prayer, they all talk about that. And uh, we have Presbyterian ministers and United and Catholic and, and different uh, clergy come here once a month, and we open it up for discussion, and that tends to be the, the lament. The church is on the decline. But studies also show that there's another group of churches in Canada that are on the rise. And they are churches that are committed primarily to teaching the basics of the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he died for our sins. That his blood is efficacious. That it is absolutely, completely worthy and able to forgive us of all of our sins. And to establish us in the kingdom of God. We need Jesus plus nothing. He is the totality of our salvation. So churches that believe that and have a desire to share the gospel, to, to preach the gospel to the community in which they live and abroad, are churches that are growing. Arisa preached here on Friday afternoon. Marlene said they weren't ready for Arisa. But what a powerful message she had. And, and she said there was not one person that left here without hearing the gospel. And, and she just did a marvelous job. And, and it was about the Philippines. The World Day of Prayer was about the Philippines. So why not have a Filipino speaker? And Risa did excellent. Where is she? Or maybe she went downstairs with the, with the children. So this question is, are we filled with the Spirit? We can have a form that is that looks like the times when we were filled with the Spirit, where we do things like lift our hands and praise and worship and listen to a message and go out and say, that was wonderful. And, and, and you can have all of those things, but the dynamics of God's Spirit within us is the grounds upon which the church is built. And anything short of that will fall into something that's different than what God intended. Let's go on in here. 
And uh, it says when they, the, he laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12, so it wasn't a big group. It was a small group. But did you know that from this group, that church grew to about 10,000 members in three years. Paul stayed and pioneered a church and pastored that church and then passed it on to Timothy. But historians say that up to 10,000 people, that's really quite amazing. Ephesus, you see, was a principal city in Asia. It was a center of commerce. It was a center of culture. It was a wealthy, wealthy city. And it was in that center where people would come from all around uh, the then-known world and do their trading there. Uh, this powerful witness of the gospel uh, had been established there. And it says they went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, trying to reach the Jews. The Jews were scattered. This was a Greek city, but Jews had been scattered all around the the world and were found in just about every place. And so they would establish their synagogues, their places of teaching. And he went into the synagogues and he reasoned and persuaded them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Is it a nation as they supposed? Was it Israel as they had believed so strongly? Or was the kingdom something different than that? Had it become something more than that? It's not that God had given up on Israel. You can see that in the book of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where God talks about the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. But it's more than a nation. The kingdom of God is in you, Jesus said. And the elements of the kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. So the kingdom is where you are. It's who you are. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And it causes you to rise to the challenges that, that are ahead of you. And it says, when some were hardened, this is verse 9, and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way. Now notice the church was referred to as the way. <laughs> W-A-Y, capital. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they, were, they came to be known as the way. If, you were, if somebody said, what church do you belong to, or what religion are you part of? And you said to them, I'm from the way. From how far away, they might ask. Uh, they would have no idea what you're talking about, but they certainly did in the Bible. And so he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, and he, and he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. So they moved from the synagogue into a local school and continued this for two years, and all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, wow, think about it. All who dwelt in Asia, that was the main part of the Roman Empire. Everybody, Jews and Greeks, heard the gospel. What is the effect of the church? What should the effect of the church be? Can we say truly that all who dwell in Pictou County have heard the gospel? It's not that we don't try, but we have a long way to go. 
And we can't do the work of God in our way. The Lord's work must be done in his way. So the scripture says um, that uh, God, verse 11, worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. I read that and think, what's a usual miracle? What's the normal everyday miracle as opposed to the unusual miracles? Well, we can get a little glimpse of it as we, as we go. And uh, it says that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body um, to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. So people would give him handkerchiefs, and he would just say, take this back to the person, and the person would be healed or delivered from an evil spirit. Then some of the internet Jews, internet Jews, get this right in a minute here, uh, were Jewish exorcists. And they took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise, that means cast you out, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And we follow this and we see the devastating results of trying to do the Lord's work without the Lord's way or without the Lord's anointing. And here's what happened. It says, um, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, there will always be false religions. There will always be falsehood, and Paul talks about that in the very next chapter when he's meeting with the elders from this church in Ephesus, this great church that had been established. But imagine, these Jewish leaders who were exorcists, which means that they had had some success. They were known as people who cast out evil spirits in those who had them. And so there were, how those evil spirits expressed themselves is, if you read the Bible, there's all different ways of, uh, of how that could have happened. Uh, people acted in a very deranged manner, or there was uh, some very evil that they would perpetrate. And, and, and everywhere Jesus went, he would cast out evil spirits. And now we see that the same thing happens with the church, with the church leaders. And so even in false religion, you can have those kinds of results. But not to the degree that Paul did, or the disciples. The effects wouldn't be the same. The same joy and liberation that happened whenever the church uh, would, would do unusual works of miracles or cast out people who were possessed by the devil 
the, the resulting liberation was transformative. It changed the person to what they had been, to what they were, they were now in Jesus. Wow. And so these Jewish exorcists, these leaders said, let's try it like Paul does. Let's try to cast out some devils in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And as soon as they did, they faced an assault that they could not have imagined. It caused them to run from the house where this took place, naked and beat up. And the, and the news of that went throughout all of Ephesus. And they didn't have Facebook or they didn't have, you know, CNN or CBC or Fox News or whatever news outlet. There was no newspapers. It just went word of mouth. Did you hear what happened? Fear came upon the whole, the whole city. Now, brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to pray about is that that kind of holy awareness coming whenever the gospel of Jesus is preached. And to pray for those things, you say, well, this sounds a little extreme, a little radical, a little out there. This was the way it was back then. It doesn't happen that way now. As soon as you say that, you're limiting what God can do. And God is limitless. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly what we imagine, above what we imagine or think. He can do the impossible. He can take a church like ours, with more than 12 people that Paul had when he went to Ephesus, and they were filled with the Spirit, and caused all the things to happen that happened for the church to explode in growth. He can take a group of people like us who are totally sold out to the purposes of God's kingdom, to the principles of the Holy Spirit, to the anointing and the gifts of the Spirit. He can take a group like us and cause things to happen that we haven't seen happen before and that we long to happen. Don't be, don't be surprised if you run into opposition. Uh, Paul was doing unusual miracles. So were the others. You would think everybody would be on board. But they weren't. They didn't accept them in the temple or in the, in the um, synagogue. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, they wouldn't accept them there, so they had to go someplace else. And then they, well, let's just continue to read. And then I'm going to take you to another passage of Scripture before we wind up this morning. And it says that uh, many, verse 19, who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of God grew mightily, and it prevailed. Uh, what should the results of the preaching of the kingdom of God be? What, what, what should be the outcome? One of the outcomes is that we have a holy reverence for the things of God. The fear of the Lord came upon the people. It wasn't just a laissez-faire sort of thing, like easy come, easy go. When I have time, I will. 
but it was something that gripped their hearts. And so the very centrality of their lives moved from what they had been and what they had done into a, a sphere called the kingdom of God, where the authority and the reign of Jesus takes precedence and where the established relationships are with those who are in the body of Christ. That's why the church is so vitally important. If you compromise your connection with the church, with the body of Christ, you open yourself to the influences that are anti-kingdom of God. And the time to teach that is at the very youngest age for our children, for our teens. To say to them when the choice is, has to be made, do I, do I go here or I go, do I go to the house of God? And, and we're not making this a religious rule, it's a principle. That once the choice is optional, then so is the kingdom of God. And the child then starts to grow up with a pick-and-choose kind of Christianity, and that's not what it's about. And they will face every kind of spiritual assault that will come against them, designed to destroy them. And so, church, <laughs> I was sitting there this morning thinking about the camp coming up. And uh, I'm looking forward to being at the camp. And one of the things I want to do at the camp is I want to train the children to be a prayer team. And so two weeks from today, you're going to come to church, and the, one of the prayer teams will be the kids. Now, if you're eight feet tall, and they are one foot tall, they're not going to be able to reach up to your forehead and lay hands on you, so you're going to have to sit on the chair. And uh, I'll tell you what, <laughs> uh, it's just, I, I just, the faith of the child, that is unpolluted by the world. <laughs> the faith of a child that has not found its way into the, into the choices that take them away from the kingdom of God. The faith of a young child is a faith that we need to, that we need to develop and encourage and, and release into active ministry. The miracles that can come from the faith of a child will spoil that child for the world and keep them in the kingdom of God. And that's what I pray. I pray that they will be so spoiled <laughs> that they won't ever turn their back on Jesus. And the Bible says when you train up a child, the word train literally means to create a taste. So you create a taste in the, in the heart and the mind of a child for the things of God. And when he is old, he will not depart or leave those things. It's like my mother and my father, well, my mother, not my father, used to make me eat peas when I was just a little guy. And I hated peas. And I would put them in my mouth because my mother was making me put them in my mouth. And I would chew them and then I'd keep them over there. And then I'd ask to go to the bathroom and those, those peas would be expelled. And I never did admit that to her. Uh, it's too late now. <laughs> well, the Bible talks about the sins of your youth. But now, my favorite vegetable, or one of them, is peas. One of the meals that Marlene prepared for me this week was had peas in it. And when I, we were done, I said, are there any more peas? I love them. Why? Because my mother had the audacity to 
create a taste in my natural inclination rejecting thing until I developed a, a, a longing for them, a love for them. And you know, it's, it's like that. Sometimes when, you're, when your child says, no, I don't want to do this, or I don't want to go to church, it sometimes make them eat the peas. Anyway, so three years passed, and the church explodes. And one of the things that was true of early Christians because they didn't have the New Testament. And Gentiles had never read the Old Testament. So they didn't know anything about the Messianic prophecies. They didn't know anything about the Psaltery where the praises were of God, to God were written uh, by men like David. They didn't know the Psalms. They didn't know anything about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. They didn't know anything about any of that, or how it would point to and lead to the coming of Jesus as Messiah and Savior of the world. And the, and the New Testament hadn't been written. There were letters that were being distributed by the hands of the apostles that later formed what we call the canon or the collection of inspired writings known as the New Testament. They were... They didn't know anything. Those were just starting to come. They were just starting to be distributed to the church. And so what would happen is a new believer would spend three years, typically, devoting themselves to the study of the Scriptures. And so they, they actually had more knowledge than many modern Christians do about the Old Testament and about the New Testament. They were so given to the Word of God. They continued steadfastly every day in the, the apostles' doctrine, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2. Every day they studied the Word of God. So in three years, they had gone from scriptural illiteracy to a knowledge of the Word of God and Jesus who is the living Word. And they had embraced that experimentally. They had been forgiven of their sins. They had been filled with the Spirit. And now they embraced it also when it came to their intellect, to their knowledge, to what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And so I often wondered, how could, how could Paul pull elders? Because he had to have hundreds of them to be able to minister to this vast congregation in this city. How could you take people within that very short span of time and, and train them in the things of God and have them become authentic, spirit-filled, Bible-filled in their knowledge, leaders in the church? And the reason is because of the daily focus on the Scriptures and, and the training that they receive. So time passes. Paul leaves them. He assigns... Timothy to the church as the principal leader. It was a church birthed in signs and wonders. It was a church birthed in the miracles of God. A church where the infilling of the Holy Spirit was essential and understood as being the foundation of all the ministry that they would do. Fear came upon not just the whole city, but the whole then known world came to know about Jesus through this one church at Ephesus. It was amazing, both Jews and Gentiles. And now Paul leaves. And there comes a time when 
God starts to speak to him about his death and how that he would die as a martyr. He would die in sacrifice of his life to the things that he preached about and to the Lord that he served. And Paul was aware of this. He didn't know exactly how it would happen. In fact, he thought it would happen in Jerusalem. It didn't. It happened in Rome. It happened under the tyranny of Nero, the emperor. I believe the year was 67 or 68 AD. Come to chapter 20. And it says that Paul is on a ship, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. In verse 17, it says that he, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. Now, he goes on and says a lot of other things that characterized his ministry, and I won't go into them this morning, but it starts with that one phrase, I served the Lord with all humility. One of the things about the supernatural is that it can vaunt you into a place of pride. It can, it can cause you, because God uses you, or God blesses a church to say, we're number one. To, to extol the name of the pastor. He's our pastor, or she's our pastor, and this is what God has done through, and, and so many spiritual leaders have become the focus of their church instead of the body becoming the focus, and so many have fallen as a result. And what's happened in gospel phrases that that very thing that Paul warns about as he continues on in this chapter took place where one man, similar to a guy by the name of Demas, started to draw people to himself. Uh, or Alexander the coppersmith, it was, that did that thing. Um, it's in First Timothy, or it's in Second Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, anyway. Um, one loved the world, the other drew people away to themselves, causing them much harm. Well, humility. It's the foundation for everything that's authentic in the church. Humility will cause the church to be accountable. Accountable to God. Accountable to spiritual leadership. Listen, when it comes to ministry, whatever you do, don't follow anybody who's not accountable to spiritual leadership. And I mean that they have a church and a pastor to whom they submit their lives and are accountable to that church. Ministry that takes itself and promotes itself or puts itself out there without that kind of accountability is not authentic ministry. That doesn't mean that the pastor and the elders are the be-all in this, uh, of everything in your life. It means nothing like that. It means that you have a relationship with people who get to know you and are able to uh, discern things in, in you that will keep you walking through and keep you walking in submission to Jesus. The very thing that happens in the church so often today where a person is promoted, uh, even though they don't have the character 
that the Bible requires is something that is very detrimental to the body of Christ. It can happen so easily. It happens so often. Humility. The disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he put a child in front of them and said, unless you humble yourself and become converted, like this little child, with total dependence upon his parents, upon others, innocent, unless you become like that. It's not something that happens naturally. It's a process of becoming. Unless you become like that, you won't see the kingdom of God. The power and the possibilities of the kingdom of God eludes you. I'm just going to close with this one more text. He comes down to verse 28 and he says, as he's talking to these elders, and he says to them, I won't see you anymore. And uh, it says uh, in verse 37, after Paul told them that he was going to die, or he thought he was going to die, and he did. He was going to be martyred. It says they all wept freely. And they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to his ship. But before that, he said this in verse 28. Um, verse 27, well, there are also such powerful verses. He said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Therefore, take heed. Uh, be careful. Make sure that you um, shepherd the church as leaders in a manner which is in keeping with the covenant of the cross. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. I wrote this in the letter that I sent yesterday to those 16 individuals. What, and, I, and I had asked the question on the telephone on Thursday night. Will you read the book of Acts chapter 20? And look at the passage that called, caused Paul to weep. And, and see how you relate to that. He said, therefore, um, and then he says, verse 30, and from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, to warn everyone night and day with tears. Wow. Is the church vulnerable? Absolutely. What is the greatest threat to the church? Is it the devil? That's not what Paul said. He said, it's, it's us. It's me. It's you. The moment we fail to take heed to the word of God and to the covenant of the blood of Christ. Once we start to promote something that's different, that elevates us from a place of humility to something else. We endanger not just ourselves, but the flock, the church. And so I say to every 
leader in the church and to every one of us, Sunday school teacher, usher, worship team person, every one of us, pastors, elders, young and old, the times are not easy times. They weren't easy then, they're not easy now. The power of the enemy is everywhere around us. The idolatry, the, the pulling away of people's hearts and minds to things that are not of God. And that's what idolatry is. Where people's attention is drawn to them. And church, we can be so vulnerable to that, especially in this day and age when there is so much available to us. All we have to do is go on the internet, go on Facebook, go on whatever. And there's every kind of thing to draw our attention to the point where reading the Bible becomes almost an afterthought. Attending the house of prayer, a prayer meeting, is something that, well, I'll fit it in whenever I can. Whenever the, the giving of our tithes and the sacrifice of our lives, when it comes to our finances, being sacrificial in our giving, it's an option whenever everything else is looked after, including all the things that I like to do, but don't really need to do. So, so it's like it's so easy. The things that can come in to diffuse the purity of the Spirit of God's presence in the house of God, in, in the hearts of the people of God, and in the ministry that flows out from the heart and people of God becomes compromised. Take heed. Take heed. And as a pastor in these days, uh, knowing that <laughs> I'm very much like Paul, uh, he wasn't going to die of old age. He was going to die because Nero would execute him. But I am older. And the prime years of my life are behind me. I thank God for the strength he gives me every day. But if there was ever a time for me to take heed, to ensure that the legacy that is left behind after I go and after Marlene goes, or after any of you go, is a legacy that will sustain the power of the kingdom of God in this place and in this community with purity, wholeness, and the anointing of the Spirit of God. And I, I, I long and I cry uh, over the church, longing to see it flourish in all the fullness of the potential and the possibility that God has assigned us through His grace and through His Word and His Spirit. And I better stop. Lord, thank you for today. One of the things that I wrote in the notes was um, a word that Paul gave to Timothy just before he died, before Paul died. It's in Second Corinthians, uh, Second Timothy, chapter four, verse six, and it says, "I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight." I finished my course and I've kept the faith. And from now on, there lays up for me in heaven a crown which the righteous God will give me. And not to me only, but to everyone who loves his appearance. Paul was writing to Timothy and he said, Timothy, the time has come. I'll soon be going.
what I want you to know. There's a fight to fight. There's a race to run. And there's a faith to keep. And he passed the torch on to Timothy. Let's stand together. Worship team, would you come? And once again, we'll just sing that song, Holy and Anointed One, Jesus.